You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. How are we? Good. It is an absolute honor uh, to be uh, with you guys and just a privilege uh, to be able to uh, share this pulpit. Uh, It's an incredible blessing uh, to be able to call you family. Uh, I was able to bring my oldest daughter, Karis, and I thought it fitting since we're talking about the charismata. And so without further ado, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As you guys as a church continue to move through this text, uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 12. Uh, Pastor Dave's asked me to do that. And so we're going to be looking specifically at verses 27 through 31 this morning. I'll be reading from the NIV, uh, and so I'll read the text, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started, see what Jesus has for us today. Beginning in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Pray with me. My King and my God, the lover of my soul, we turn to your scripture and we declare that it is sweet as honey. Yes, even sweeter than the honeycomb. God, I pray that as your word is preached, you would be made much of today. I pray that you would stir our affections for you, Jesus. That, God, we would realize the infinite depths, that you would give us power to comprehend the height, the breadth, the width, and the depth of your love. And so make much of yourself, Jesus. Holy Spirit, help. I pray that you would be near us today. That, God, you would bring with your presence your tangible uh, embrace and the kisses upon our necks. And so we love you, we adore you, we praise you. We know it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ezekiel 37, the Old Testament prophet is given a vision And he's caught up by the hand of the Lord and he's taken to a valley that has experienced an incredible battle. There's decimation all around and everywhere you look and everywhere you walk, there's bones, human bones as far as the eye can see. And he asks Ezekiel, God does, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel says, only you know And God instructs him to prophesy to the bones to live. And all of a sudden it says in Ezekiel 37 that there's an incredible rattling noise. And all of a sudden the bones begin to come together. 
The ribs come together. They join to the spine once again. And all of a sudden, muscle and skin covers them. And so these once just bones and dry bones at that are now these, these full bodies. And yet something is still missing. And so he says... Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And as you as a church have been looking at the person and the power of the Holy Spirit, God doesn't just take pieces of the body and put them together and leave them be and say, good enough. But he has given the Holy Spirit to his bride, the church, to breathe life into her and animate the whole body into a living, breathing, vibrant, life-giving community. And Paul desires that the Corinthian church would be a living, healthy, life-giving community. The body of Christ thriving in their context and in their city. So when it comes to addressing in the Corinthian church the spiritual gifts and their abuse, he does something fascinating. Instead of saying as he does elsewhere in this letter, stop. He doesn't say stop the spiritual gifts, but do them better, way better. And there is, as our text says in verse 31, a more or a most excellent way. And so how can this Corinthian church, how can we in this church have a culture of excellence in regards to spiritual gifts? How can we do these gifts in an excellent way? That's what our passage addresses today. So today we'll look at excellence through unified unified diversity, excellence through proper pursuit, and then excellence through loving grace. Excellence through unified diversity. And the first aspect of unity is number one, a vital connection to Jesus, our head. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each of you is part of it. Now you are the body of Christ. And he is saying and summing up everything that he's been saying in chapter 12 in these last verses. Summing up everything that Pastor Dave and Pastor Dave have wonderfully preached the past couple of weeks. But like divers getting ready to go down into the depths of the ocean to find sunken treasure... He's preparing the readers and us for the treasure of chapter 13, to pull up each diamond, to pull up each ruby, to pull up each golden crown, uh, every uh, uh, jot uh, of chapter 13. And he wants our hearts ready. He wants us prepared as we dive into it. And he's summing up what has come before for a reason. And we must not miss the point or the force of his argument. Literally in the Greek, verse 27 begins by saying, you are body. Not the body, you are body. Not the head, not the brain. Those in the church that we deem as super spiritual and out in the front, they are not the head. He's saying, we are body and Christ alone is head. 
that Jesus is our authority. And the body must have, if it is to be alive, first and foremost, a vital life-giving connection to the head, which is Jesus. Uh, My little boy, as I was studying outside last week, he's five years old, his name's Hudson. And uh, he came to me, and I was sitting outside, and he has a leaf in his hand, and he asked, and he said, Dad, why do leaves change color? And I said, oh, it's because they're dead. And his eyes got wide, and he was like, oh, no, it's dead? And so he literally took his hand and began to pump the leaf and go, And so he's doing CPR on a leaf. And I said, that's not going to work. And he says, what if I put it in water? And he goes and he grabs a bucket of water. And he said, no, that's not going to work. It's dead. It's not connected any longer to the tree. And so Paul is drawing our attention first and foremost. Are we connected to Christ? Are we as a branch connected to the vine? Do you have vital contact with Jesus? Have you ever in this place had vital contact with Jesus? Not just a general knowledge of God, but an intimate, ongoing relationship with Christ where he is our king, he is our Lord, he is our lover. We will not do the rest. We might as well not progress in this text unless the first question is answered. Vital ongoing connection. Because remember, as you guys have been studying, spiritual gifts are not a sign of spiritual maturity. Spiritual gifts are not a sign of spiritual maturity. Look at what he says in chapter one uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You have them all. You don't lack any spiritual gift. But then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. He says, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants, in Christ. In fact, one of the craziest sections of scripture is in Matthew 7 as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy spiritual gifts in your name? And in your name drive out demons, spiritual power, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. And that word know means to know intimately, relationally, to be vitally connected to the head. Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced his life-transforming love? When we got back from uh, the DNA conference, it's where all the realities got together this last week. I walk in the door and all the kids, you know, run. It's one of the best things as a dad when your kids just tackle you. And my, again, my son Hudson, five-year-old, he said something so different than he's ever said to me. He said, dad, and he grabbed my face in his hands and he said, I loved you the whole time. And he's like, no, really, dad, I loved you the whole time. It was so outward focused, it brought tears to my eyes. 
Have you experienced the infinite, unbounded love of God that grabs a hold of your face and says, before even the earth began, I've loved you the whole time? Do you have vital, life-giving connection to Christ? We never want to become, as Christians, travel, like travel agents telling other people about places that we ourselves haven't been. So there's unity to Christ, number one, unity to one another. The, and you guys have heard this wonderfully, but let me just draw up some other points. The body metaphor is a powerful image. Think about this. Imagine a body that isn't unified. It's a horrific image, body parts scattered all over the place. And so he's saying, you must be together. It's a terrible image if we're not together, if we're not unified. And unity comes as we see Christ together, as we keep pointing one another to Jesus. But another way that the body metaphor is a powerful image is that it's God's way of saying that we desperately need one another. And God has designed it so that we are dependent on differences. God has designed the church to work that we are dependent on differences. Notice in verse 27 again, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. He's going to go on and explain that not all of us have the same gifts. None of us is all of it and we're not to be the same but we each have a necessary and a vital part to play. Jesus is the only one, scripture says, who had the spirit and spiritual gifts without limit. In John 3.34, for he, sent, he is sent by God, he speaks God's word, speaking of Jesus, for God gives him the spirit without limit. But we get the gifts of the spirit with limit. Ephesians 4, 7, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ, a special gift. Romans 12, 6, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, you looked at this two weeks ago, all these are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So, so, so why do I say all of that? Follow the Bible's logic. Jesus has all the gifts. We each have at least one gifts, but not all the gifts. The Bible tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us the church like Jesus so only when we come together can we ever hope to look like Jesus in the city. Sometimes we look around and we go, man, but I want that gift. That's the cool gift. My gift's not that much. One of my favorite stories, it's a parable from India. And there's a man there who has, uh, takes and goes, walks down to the river, uh, which is quite a journey. Uh, and he's got a, you know, bamboo stick and he has two pots of water or two pots and then he fills them up at the river stream and then he makes his way back and he's got water for the house and such. Well, one of the pots is cracked and he's envious of the other pot. 
because the other pot uh, takes all the water from the river, makes it all the way back to the house, and he's useful. And so this other pot is looking, and he's just, he's envious. He's like, man, look at me. By the time I get all the way back, there's literally no water left in me. I am useless. Why do you even take me? And so this servant heard the, uh, the pot uh, uh, talking amongst himself and knew his uh, thoughts. And so as he went down to the river next time, he says, I want you to notice something that maybe you haven't noticed. And so as he filled the pots with water, he says, please notice on your side of the path. And as he noticed on his side of the path and only on his side of the path were flowers growing all the way to the master's house. He said, my master loves the table spread with the choicest flowers. And I said, and he said to the pot, I chose you for this special purpose. And God would say to you, he's given you a gift and he has chosen you specifically for this purpose and to be content in that. We next see that there's a diversity in the gifting and this gets into the bulk of the, and the meat of the passage. And God has placed in the church, verse 28, First of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. And so notice first in verse 28, and God has placed in the church. God has placed in the church. God is the designer of you and your gifts. You are not an afterthought in his mind. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. The Greek word there is poema, literally, you are a love sonnet to him. You are a poem that he has written. He has created, created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God has placed you in the church. You are necessary to the church. And he's made us as the church dependent on differences. Oh, how he loves you today. And how he has carefully and skillfully and lovingly shaped you for a wonderful purpose. Just like the water pots, he's specifically chosen you. And there's only something that you can do. Second, the first of the three gifts. First of all, notice in the text... Uh, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Notice that there's an ordered list to these first three gifts, and then the word then. So number one, number two, number three, then the rest. A summary of, or a sample of the gifts. Why the order? Are they more important? Let's look at what the gifts are. Number one, apostles, the gift of apostles. Now, I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that the office of apostle is no longer the office. He's given us the office of elder and deacon because there are certain requirements to be an apostle. They needed, number one, to be specifically called by Christ. They had to see the risen Christ. And you could see the criteria for an apostle in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. They governed and they established the church under Christ and they had authority from Christ to write scripture. Now you say, what about Paul? He was an apostle. 
Paul was uniquely uh, called to be an apostle to the Gentiles on the Damascus Road, which led him to say of the uniqueness, the abnormality of his call in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So where I believe the the office of apostle is closed, I believe, and since this is a list of the gifts, I believe that the gift of apostle is still operating today. What does apostle mean? Apostle means sent one, sent one. It is one who is sent to pioneer a work of the gospel. Church planners should have this gift. Missionaries should have this gift and can have this gift. Pastor Dave Lomas has this gift. Sent by Reality Coastlands, the Holy Spirit said, uh, set apart unto me Dave Lomas for the work that I've called him to do. And sent him out and with this gift to pioneer a gospel work by planning a church in this city. And, And you guys are the fruit of that. Then he moves on to the gift of prophecy or prophets. And what is that? That's communication given by God as a response to and tailored to the special needs and issues of those who hear it. There's always encouragement in the gift of prophecy. Always. The gift of teaching, the ability to explain truth and apply it to people's lives. So these first three gifts, here we go. We find a similar list in Ephesians 4 verse 11 to 12. And he, gave him, uh, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice that these are given to equip the rest of the church for the work of the ministry. You guys do the real ministry. In fact, that root word for equip there is one of the best words. It means to set a dislocated shoulder, uh, to put it back right, or to mend a broken fishing net. And so here's how the church plays out in that dynamic, is you guys are out ministering to one another and to the city, being Jesus to the city, in your workplace, and in your neighborhoods. Maybe you get discouraged, and so you come and you hear that God is in control that he sits on his throne and he is not moved, and that every circumstance and situation passes through his nail-scarred hands, and that he uses all of his power and might for his glory and your inevitable joy. The fishing net is mended. Perhaps you get distracted on what the priorities truly are, and you hear once again of the beauty of Christ and your heart is relocated. And so the list is not one of importance, but of necessity. The church is planted, the gift of the apostle. The church is encouraged, the gift of prophecy. The church is taught, the gift of teaching. And it's in this framework where you, the true ministers of the gospel of Jesus, can thrive in your gifts, mature in Christ, and be equipped to bringing glory to God. And then he moves on to the rest of the gifts, the gift of miracles. Supernatural acts that reveal God's power. I remember I used to be a youth pastor and I had in uh, my youth group this quiet, unassuming, 
homeschooled girl. And uh, she got to go on a missions trip to India. And uh, as she was there, somehow she got off with, uh, it was just her and a translator into a remote part uh, of the country. And, and so as she ended up, they end up in this, this village kind of set on this hill and there's panic going on. And so she's asking the translator, what's going on? What's going on? And so the, some people in the village lead her over to a cow that's dead. I mean, dead like flies, you know, where you got to swat them out of the way to see. And this little town depended on this cow for, for milk. And, it, and they're freaking out and wondering what they're going to do. And so they ask, they say, can you pray? Your missionaries, can you pray for our cow? And she's like, uh, okay. And so a simple prayer. And the cow came alive. And the whole town heard the gospel and was changed. Supernatural acts that reveals God's power. The gift of healing. What a beautiful gift. The ability to reverse destructive impacts of sin and sickness, usually coupled with the gift of faith. The gift of helping, and this is such a glorious gift, isn't it? The ability to aid or render assistance to others with compassion and grace inside and outside of the church. To joyfully work alongside another to help that person complete the task that God has given them. And then we come to the gift of guidance or in other translations, the gift of administration. And you know, we tend to think the gift of administration just numbers and charts and graphs, but the Bible has a much more glorious view of this gift. It's a maritime term for steering a ship and plotting the course. And so the visionary comes and he goes, I know where we're going. I know the destination. And this one with the gift of guidance or administration knows where the water's shallow and where it's deep. The way that the current is flowing and the way the winds are blowing. And he plots the course and he gets them to the destination. Praise God for this gift. The gift of all different kinds of tongues, the ability to praise God, uh, to pray or praise in a language unknown to the user. And these, this gift is certainly will be addressed along with the gift of prophecy in more detail when you guys get to chapter 14. The gift of the interpretation of tongues, you see that at the end of verse 30 there, and that is simply the ability to interpret the language. And then he asks in verse 29 to 30 a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? To which we answer, no. Hopefully. No. No. Why does he bring that up? Because we have a tendency with our gift to project our gift on other people. I was an electrician. I actually worked in the city and around the city for seven years. And I had this, the electrician's curse, which is every building I walked into, all I saw was the light and what was right and what was wrong. And so I'd be like, oh man, Chipotle, you really need to pull it together. You know, and, and just, <laughs> I just look, oh, that's bad pie. Oh, why would they? And, and, I, and my wife would just be like, you're such a nerd. What are you doing? Can't you just enjoy? 
Uh, and here's what tends to happen is that we tend to project our gift on others so that if somebody has the gift of evangelism, then those who aren't doing evangelism were like, oh man, if the church just had more people out there, then this would be a healthy church. Well, God is making it a healthy church by bringing you to it and you playing your part. The gift of intercession. Oh man, why aren't the people praying? Because he's called you to pray and stand to the gap on their behalf. And so he says, are we all this? Do we all have, no, play your part. Find your place in the wall like the story of Nehemiah and build one brick upon the another until one day it is complete. So to recap the first point, much quicker on the second points, Moving toward a culture of excellence in the gift of the spirit is number one, unity. Unity to Christ, our head, and through necessary connection to one another as we seek Jesus together. Point number two, diversity. God has made us dependent on differences. And so then we come to the way of excellence through proper pursuit. He says in verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Now any reader would say, wait a minute, wait, what's going on here? Paul has just said that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts to who he wills. Now Paul's encouraging them to desire gifts that they don't have, is that what he's saying? You see, what Paul is going to do is he's going to pull the rug out from underneath the Corinthians. He's going to affirm the good and their desire. He's going to look at the good, evidences of grace, and he's going to say, you want more of the Holy Spirit and you want to be used by him? Amen to that. Yes. But you're going about it all wrong. Your orientation is off. In fact, it's so off, it's the opposite direction of where you need to head. And he wants to reorient their pursuit. First, they wanted what they thought were the greater gifts. And their definition of greater in gift were the ones that were showy and out front and would draw attention to themselves tongues being one of them, because they thought to be seen by others as more spiritual, as more mature, as more useful to the Lord, that that's where satisfaction would lie, that that's where pleasure would be in the work of the Lord. There was a selfishness in their seeking, and as a result, their gifts were filled with the seawater of selfishness and pride, not useful to a thirsty soul. So Paul says, yes, desire the greater gifts, but let me tell you what great gifts are really all about. The way to greatness in gifts is to use them and not building your kingdom, but God's kingdom by building up not yourself, but others. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So it is with you since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit. Try to excel in those that build up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. But here's the thing, and here's Paul's argument. 
If our pursuit is just for greater gifts, even the gifts that build up, that will miss the culture of excellence that Paul wants them to experience. Notice in verse 31 again, listen to his argument. Now eagerly desire the greatest gifts. I affirm that you wanna be used by the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you the direction you should head in what those greater gifts look like. And yet, he says, I will show you the most excellent way. Because if our aim and our pursuit as a church is just more gifts or the greater gifts, or even the pursuit of excellence in the gifts, the result is 1 Corinthians 13, one to three. Here were some people or the idea, the example that Paul uses, who had gifts in the most, in their mind, excellent way. Listen, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Some commentators say that the call to pagan worship in Corinth was by the clanging of cymbals and gongs. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, or Paul is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, He's saying, if love is absent, then no matter how well you speak, in my ears, it's pagan worship. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And 1 Corinthians 14, one says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Notice the order. Fill your gift like that water pot with the water of love and then through the gift that God has given, pour out that love into others' lives. We're starting to get closer to the culture of excellence in spiritual gifts. Every gift of the Holy Spirit, the one you have, is a vessel to transport the love of God into others' lives. You hear that? So the way to a culture of excellence heading that direction in spiritual gifts is to ask even the person sitting next to you, think in your mind, how does God want to love this person through me right now? And the gifts are gonna take care of himself. He's put you for such a time as this. How does God want me to love my neighbor right now? How does he wanna work his love through me? How does he wanna fill the unique pot that he's given me? Some will water the flowers because the gifts look different and some will put refreshing water to parched lips and yet and here's the thing we are still not at the heights Paul intends for us we're still not all the way there in the culture of excellence you see if 
I stopped here, and this is a deep conviction, and said, pursue love, fill your gifts with love, go, do, it would be like sending you to an empty riverbed hoping that it rains. And so we come to our final point, excellence through grace. 1 Corinthians 13 is not just something given so we have something to read at weddings. It's quite the thing I always puzzle over, wow, this is like a bar you are setting right off the bat. It's neither randomly inserted into the text. Like Paul was like, oh, I, I have this great you know, thesis on love. Where does it fit? But that it's pur- purposeful. That it is a mirror that shows us how far our love falls short. And you'll get into that. I don't want to tread into to Dave's text. I do some shopping at a store in Stockton called Crossroads and I hate the mirror in the changing room. I don't know what it is. My mirror's at home, I'm like, yes. <laughs> and there it's harsh fluorescent light and it, I just, what in the world is happening? I look like clay that has been in the microwave slowly melting. <laughs> I think I hate it because it's accurate. And number one, Paul knows that you can't get through 1 Corinthians 13 without being undone by the bar that's been set. I think of Jesus in in John 21 when he's meeting with Peter on the the Sea of Galilee there and and they'd been fishing. And they'd caught a great number of fish and all of a sudden it points them to the beach and they realize that Jesus is over there and, and he's cooking fish waiting for them, and Peter leaps out of the boat. I think he thinks he's gonna walk on water again. He doesn't, he sinks. And he comes to the shore, and they're sitting there, and they're eating breakfast together in the early morning hours. And Jesus begins to ask Peter a series of questions. You see, Peter had denied his Lord three times. So Jesus is gonna ask him three questions in front of all the others. And we miss it, but there's a beautiful rhythm that plays out in the Greek. Let me try to be faithful to it. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And that word agape is what Paul is defining in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an unconditional, others-centered love. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, yes, Lord, I phileo or love you like a brother. And Jesus looks at Peter again and he says, Peter, me and you right now, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And then Jesus takes it one step and he says, Peter, do you love me like a brother? And he says, Lord, I don't even know you know everything that's in my heart. And then Jesus does one of the most beautiful things in the same place, the Sea of Galilee, that he was commissioned as a flawed follower of Christ 
Jesus takes them back to that moment and says, return to first things, follow me. But he's undone by the standard of love. He's undone by it. And so it would be a not faithful thing to where Paul is going to say, go pursue love, go do. There must be something first. The matter of first importance. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's an obscure story about David's mighty men. Growing up, I love these stories of his mighty men. And this was a time when Dave was, David was running from his life and he had uh, many followers uh, around him. And he came to the cave of Adullam. And so he's at this cave and, and, and he's having a hard day and he just cries out because he grew up in Bethlehem and maybe the cave water was stagnant or something, but he just said, oh, that I could drink from the well at Bethlehem. Well, these three mighty warriors hear that and to them, his wish is their command. Now at the time, Bethlehem was occupied by the Philistines, by the enemy, and there was a Philistine garrison there, and it says that they cut through the Philistine horde and that they got a pitcher full of water from the well at Bethlehem, fought their way back out, and they brought it to David. And David fell on his face and he said, I cannot believe that you did this. And he takes the water and he pours it out. Why? Because he says, I am not worthy of such devotion. Only God is worthy of that. Only God is worthy of that. And one of the beautiful things about that story is because as all scripture points to our Jesus, that one day the mightiest man of all would come, God clothed in human flesh. And he came not in might, but in weakness, born in a manger. And as he walked this earth, he saw from our eye and our perspective, our spiritual thirst. And we were looking everywhere to quench our thirst, everywhere to satisfy this spiritual angst, the spiritual longing, the spiritual thirst that we have. And like drinking salt water from a well, we only got more thirsty and more thirsty and more thirsty. And he saw our spiritual thirst and to bring you the water of life that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. He fought through the enemy horde and its great generals, Satan, sin, and death. He fought to bring us this water, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of it. The only way that we could drink the waters of life today is if his pot, if his vessel was shattered. And when he went to the cross, everything that I deserved, all my rebellion, my selfishness, and my pride, a life spent, Ruling myself, building my own kingdom on the backs of others was put on my precious Lord and Savior and the divine justice of a holy God fell on him and shattered him and he was broken so that I could be made whole. And that in its place, as he got my sin and suffered the consequences, I got his perfect record 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when God looks at me because of what Jesus has done, all he sees is beauty. All he sees is perfection. And that is the gospel. He stands before you today offering you, whether you're a seeker or whether you're a follower of Jesus, the infinite streams of his loving devotion. Do not pour it out. Do not pour it out. He is lovingly devoted to you. And so the charge would be, drink it in today. Swim in it. Be filled up and then take this love to others. So we would conclude that Paul's thought here is that the way to a culture of excellence in the spiritual gifts is not to seek simply the gifts that build up, though that's good. Nor is the primary goal to pursue love, though that must be a point. But the first thing is to see that you have been pursued by love. And as you stand in that never-ending stream, dip your gifts into its life-giving waters until they are filled to the brim with greatness because love is what makes the gifts great. Love for others and take this love to other thirsty souls and see them built up in Jesus' name. Amen? Verse John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. He grabs a hold of your face today and he says, I have loved you the whole time. So now we'll go to a a time of response. And if you're here today and you're a seeker, Jesus has made every way. Jesus is what your soul is actually after. And he offers it to you. Don't pour it out. Respond. Come to Jesus today. Be baptized. Proclaim that Jesus is good in this place. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much. God, I just pray now that as we've talked about your love, Holy Spirit, you would make your love tangible in this place. Lord, we praise you that you don't just give us our love or your love to us, some future version of us, but that, Lord, you love us now, completely, where we're at, messes and all. And so, God, we respond to that. We come, we adore, we worship, and we bow down. And so we draw near to you and ask that you would draw near to us. Wrap your arms around every heart today. Whisper the sweet sonnets of love into their ears. And may they be filled to the brim, the love of God poured out into their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.